Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Typically, pastors are supposed to do something on Father's Day, you know, make the dads stand up and everybody cheers them and, nah, let's not do that today. How about... Actually, I, this is a good Father's Day for, for a number of reasons. For me, my father just recently had a bad medical emergency. Back in April, he went into the hospital with some unknown brain condition. He ended up getting into a coma, and we had to do, they had to do some surgery. He was in the hospital eight weeks, but he's finally home, and I'm, I'm pleased to report he's recovering. And that was a, a real answer to prayer. So uh, my heart goes out to my father today, and as well to you all, the fathers in the room. God has given us a day to remember you, and rightly so. But as we come into the church this morning, we remember our Father in Heaven, as we do every Sunday. So let's turn our attention there. We'll open in uh, the study this morning in 1 Kings. So as I prepare to teach, why don't you open your Bibles and uh, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. As uh, Jeff mentioned, my name is Stephen Armstrong, and I come from San Antonio. I, I was getting a kick out of Jeff mentioning Atlanta being hot. Atlanta being hot. It's 100 and something degrees out there at 8 in the morning, and you guys are worried about Atlanta being hot. I drove through here last June. I don't know how many of you were in the church back when, when it was meeting in that, that rehabilitation center. Is that where it was when I taught here last? And uh, what an amazing work God has done uh, in the last 12 months to put you here. It was June 3rd that I was here last year. And I remember driving into town. My little car thermometer said 111. But, you know, it's funny. I remember now I taught in that facility, and it was less than a month later, I think you all had moved out of that facility and come into this facility. So I take full credit uh, for that. And I'm just excited to see where you'll be after this weekend. Uh, Clearly, guys are going to do another great work. That's my assumption. Uh, But it's been a year, and I've really been enjoying listening to Brian tell me about all that God has been doing here in that time. As I said, today we're going to be in 1 Kings, and as I thought about what I would teach on today, the prophets kept coming back to mind, teaching out of the the book of of a prophet somewhere in in the Old Testament, and I couldn't understand why it kept being placed on my mind, and as I thought about it, I realized, really, as I thought about Brian, having known him for for ten or more years now, every time I think about him, it reminds me of prophets, and I I think maybe that's because he's got such a... uh, heart to teach and preach the word in an uncompromising way. And then I thought, no, that's not it. Uh, maybe it's just there's so much power packed in such a small package. Maybe that's it. And I thought, no, that, that's not really it either. I'm not sure why he kept coming to mind every time I thought of prophets. And then finally it dawned on me. In fact, if you've got your Bible open already to First Kings, just hold your thumb there and then turn a little to the right because there's a passage of a few pages to the right in Second Kings chapter 2. And I thought as I started studying for today, it really dawned on me why it is that I think of Brian every time I think of the prophets. And it's in chapter 2, verse 23. This is a story about Elisha. And as you look at the Verse it says that Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him, saying, Go up, you baldy, go up, you baldy. And I thought, that's why I'm always thinking of him when I think of prophets. As I remember last year when I came and, and spoke, I made a joke about his hair then, too, and yet he invited me back so he should have known better. It's his own fault. Let's see, so far I've got a joke in about his size and about his hair. I'll work in a couple more, I'm sure, before it's all over. No, but seriously, we are going to study the book of 1 Kings chapter 19 today, Elijah in this case. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open up in his word. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Thank you, Lord, for delivering me here safely. Thank you, Father, for bringing Clint and for bringing his gift of worship this morning as he brought about our entrance into the study through a time of worship in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God and for a church that upholds the teaching of your word. In a city, Father, where so many do not know you, we have a blessing found in faithful men and women who have brought your word to this city. Let us never take that for granted, Father. And we thank you this morning that as Brian and his family are enjoying a much-needed time of rest with his family, that the family of God can still gather in his absence, Father, with the Holy Spirit present and your word before us. We ask, Lord, that the teacher this morning would not be a man, but would be you through the Holy Spirit. And that the hearts and ears, Father, that receive this message would not receive it as from a man, but would receive it from you. For you are the Father we honor this morning as every morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me the first three verses of 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. I'm going to pause because I want you to have a full appreciation for what's going on here in this story of a man named Elijah. He was the reigning prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel in this day. Now, you may remember if you've studied a bit of the history of the nation of Israel, that Israel was a united kingdom under its first three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon. But following Solomon's reign, God, because of Solomon's apostasy and his sin in his own time, God said, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your son's hands and take ten of the twelve tribes, and they will separate under a different king. The remaining two, Judah and Benjamin, remained in the family of Solomon in the name of his son, Rehoboam. But these northern kingdom tribes, these ten tribes in the north, came under the name Israel, where the southern came under the name Judah. So at this point, we're looking at the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north. And in those ten tribes, Elijah becomes the first major prophet that God sends to those tribes. He's got a ministry that lasts about eight years. Not very long, but it's eventful. It's a very powerful ministry. It's a difficult eight-year period because it came during the reign of one of the most evil kings ever to serve in that kingdom. The nation of Israel, those northern tribes, they were not known for having good kings anyway, but the one that reigned during Elijah's time was particularly bad. You may know his name, Ahab. In fact, you probably know his famous wife even better, Jezebel. There's a reason why young girls today are not called Jezebel very often. She didn't exactly give that name uh, a good reputation. Elijah has to serve as God's prophet in this kingdom under Ahab and under Jezebel, two of the most evil people you'd ever meet. Ahab was best known for establishing the worship of Baal, Baal, during his time. He made it the official sanctioned religion of Israel. In fact, he erected a temple to Baal in Samaria, which was the kingdom's capital at the time. He didn't just condone the worship of idols. This wasn't simply a matter of looking the other way as the nation of Israel ran off in idol worship. He actually made the worship of Baal, the prescribed national faith, 
in replacement for what God had given in the law of Moses. This was an apostasy of an entirely new order. And he did all of that under the influence of this evil wife, this Phoenician wife, Jezebel. These two people personified evil in their time, and they brought Israel to a new low. That's the circumstances in which Elijah has been called into a ministry of bringing God's word to the people. I don't know how much you know about Baal or about Baal worship. The full name of this god is Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Some think it may also mean Lord of the Flame. But in either case, we're talking here about Satan personified. Not just an ordinary idol, but true Satan worship became the national faith of the northern tribes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what God must have thought? And they would practice this abhorrent faith, doing some of the worst things you can imagine. Their religious practices included all manner of cult and prostitute activity in the course of their religious service. They had a whole priesthood around supporting and and, uh, performing these religious services. The Baal worshippers had included sacrifice in their practices, but not of animals. By and large, they would sacrifice their children. We're talking about infants, young babies brought to the altar by parents who were wanting to worship this Baal and watching them sliced open by the priests. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God's perspective looking down on the nation of Israel to watch this going on? And into this culture, God sends Elijah for eight years to rail against these evil people, against the king and against the queen. If you've studied some of his history up to the point of chapter 19, you'd know, for example, that he brings a drought on the nation of Israel during this time as punishment against Ahab. And during that time, he does other miracles like raising a boy from the dead. And now, right at this point in chapter 19, he's just finished perhaps his most famous miracle. The one where Elijah calls out the priests of Baal, takes them to Mount Carmel and says, we're going to settle this once and for all. We're going to say, who is really God? Your God, Baal, or my God, Yahweh? And if you know the story, they prepare a sacrifice on the head top of this mountain. And as the Baal priests try in vain to call fire down from their God to to consume their sacrifice, uh, Elijah sits by on the side making fun of them. And then when it's Elijah's turn, he douses God's sacrifice with water, makes it saturated with water, and then calls on God to perform. And God comes down with fire, consumes the sacrifice. And as a result, the people that are watching this happen side with Elijah. And he then takes up the sword and kills every single one of the Baal prophets who had assembled on Mount Carmel that day. Wipes them all out as God expected him to do. So that's what just happened in chapter 18. Now, that brings us up to where we are this morning. His success in this episode is rather short-lived. You know, you and I, if we had sat there and watched this happen, you think we might have put aside Baal worship at that point? You think maybe the sight of God consuming this wet sacrifice while watching all the priests of Baal being slaughtered, that would have been enough for us to say, ah, I got it. Worship God, not Baal. But it didn't happen that way. Yes, they agreed with Elijah in the moment, but then they quickly went back to Baal worship anyway. And Jezebel is absolutely incensed at Elijah. She's already mad at him for all the stuff he's done before with the drought and with all that's come with it. But now, to murder all the Baal priests, she's had it. So she says, as we read in verse 1, I'm going to destroy you as you destroyed my priests. So what does Elijah do? He runs away. He runs away. We're told he runs from Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, south into Judah, 
into the southern kingdom. But he doesn't just stop at the border. He goes all the way through Judah. He gets to a town called Beersheba, which is the southernmost city of the southern kingdom. And there he told in verse 4, he tells his servant, you don't need to go any further with me. He leaves his servant there. And then he goes even further. Look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Sound like a little bit of pity? A day's journey in that time was about a 20-mile walk. A good man on an average day could walk about 20 miles in a day. So what you see happening here is he's walked all the way from Samaria down to Beersheba. That's not good enough. Now he goes out the southern border of Judah into the wilderness where the Jews wandered for 40 years and walks another day's journey, stops at a juniper tree, and sits down. No water, no food, no help anymore. He put his servant aside. No plan. And then, after he's sitting out in the wilderness with nothing to go by in a total desperate moment, he sits under a tree and he says, I just want to die here. This reminds me of the last church youth camp I went out on. Only he doesn't have about 30 or 40 screaming 12-year-olds. But other than that, it's pretty much the same circumstance. You're desperate. He's sitting under this tree, right? Great escape plan, isn't it? He's really thought this through, hasn't he? Now, in my mind, as I read this story, the first thought that comes to mind is, this is no escape plan. I mean, this doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, I want you to consider a few facts. First of all, consider why he's running. Supposedly because Je uh, Jezebel has threatened to kill him. Now, the scripture said he was afraid. I'm sure he was. That's understandable. But this isn't the first time that he and Jezebel have had conflict. During the time of the drought, Jezebel and, and Ahab were both looking for Elijah the whole time trying to find this guy that was responsible for years of drought. And did he go this far then? Did he run outside the, the country and then run outside Judah and then go 20 miles? No. In fact, he stayed in the kingdom. He simply hid in convenient locations God gave him. And then consider what he's just done in chapter 18. Anyone who could call down all-consuming supernatural fire from the sky to consume a sacrifice probably can handle Jezebel. That's my thinking. He's probably not in that much danger. Do you think he doesn't recognize that God is working with him to protect him and guide him in this ministry? The guy's not an idiot. He's just doing a dumb thing. I don't think he's running because he's afraid of Jezebel. Not entirely. And I don't think this plan is all about escaping from Ahab and Jezebel. He's fleeing and hiding for some other reason. He travels, we're told, from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah to Beersheba, then crosses the border, then goes out to find this tree, and he sits down, and you know what he's doing? He's having a pity party. You ever heard that term? A pity party. It's what happens when you decide that life is against you and that God's not there with you, and you're just, you're not going to show God any obedience, you're not going to give God any credit, you're going to sit down and feel sorry for yourself, and because you deny God your service, you're going to show him. Do you think that works? Well, let's see what happens to Elijah. Elijah says in the end of verse 4, the most telling thing. He says, I failed just like the fathers, just like my fathers failed. What he's referring to here are the earlier prophets of Israel. Men in his day like Nathan or Gad or even going back further to Samuel or even going all the way back to Moses. 
Men who before him had come along in a similar situation where the nation of Israel was apostate, they were disobedient, they weren't listening anymore to God's word, they weren't following what the prophets said, and they made the lives of those prophets miserable. And what does Elijah say in thinking about all of those men and thinking about himself? He says, I failed just like they did. Whoa, they failed? Is that what they did, Elijah? And now you failed, Elijah? So God might as well just kill you, Elijah, because you failed? This is one pity party he's got going here. He's not running because he's afraid for his life, folks. He's running because he's afraid for his reputation. He's running because he doesn't like the fact that he didn't get the result he wanted from the work God gave him to do. All-consuming fire, big miraculous moment on the top of Mount Carmel, slaying all the Baal priests. And then the nation of Israel just turns right back around to their old practices. And he runs off. He runs from a woman who's long sought to kill him, knowing that God is protecting him. And he doesn't just flee a reasonable distance. He goes all the way, we're going to see here in a minute, all the way to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, that's the place where God received the law, or gave the law, rather, to Moses. Do you know how far that distance is? If you trace it back from where he left in Samaria, and you trace it all the way to the probable location of Mount Horeb, you're talking about a distance of nearly 400 miles. This guy walked 400 miles. Do you think he needed to walk that far? The only reason you walk that far is to make a point. To make a point. God knows he's sulking too. Look what goes on in verse 5. As he lays down under this tree, he sleeps, we're told. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he lay down. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, No, arise, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Did you ever threaten to run away from home when you were little? I mean, when you're really little, when it's really too early for you to practically, truly run away, like when you're six or five, anybody ever do that? And that's an old trick, isn't it? If you, in fact, if you've ever been a parent and had a kid play this trick on you, it's actually quite enjoyable. We enjoy it in my family quite a bit. Because the kid will do this. This is typically how it works. The child will announce that they're running away. Right? I mean, truly, if you're trying to run away, do you tell somebody? No. But a kid will often do this, right? The six-year-old, imagine a very young child, they'll say, Mommy, I'm running away because of something that happened in the home, something they didn't get. Something they don't like anymore. Maybe they were disciplined. Whatever it is, they pack their bags. This is my favorite part. Watching what they choose to take. You know, they only take the important stuff, like the teddy bear. And the toothbrush, maybe. That's, I think, just as a show to make sure mom knows you're going to take care of yourself. And then, to top it off, to make sure you're really serious, that you show the parents, I'm not coming back, you take the blankie. So you have the teddy bear and the blankie and a few other trinkets. You put it in the bag and you walk out, right? Very dramatic. And then... As you walk out, think about it, you don't know where you're going. And the reality is, you don't plan on going anywhere, do you? If you really think about it, the child doesn't intend to physically leave the home forever. They don't have a plan. They don't expect to go very far. Why? Because the point of it is not to actually leave. In most cases, and again, I'm talking about a very young child here, the, case, the reason they're doing this is because they want to get attention and they want to make a point. And they know that the parents aren't going to let them go, don't they? They know the parents love them way too much to be without their company, 
And the parents are going to quickly wise up as soon as they see this child threatening to leave. And they're going to come run to the child's side. And they're going to say, oh, honey, forgive us. Oh, honey, what do we have to do to have you come home again? Right? That's what's going on in the wheels of the child's mind. Anybody ever do that? Just me? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'll tell you right now, it doesn't work. What does a smart parent do in those circumstances? What would you do to your, say, six-year-old child who actually has gone to the effort of packing something and walk out the front door? Well, on the one hand, you need to teach the child a lesson in this circumstance about respecting authority and about the need to be under rules in the family and about the need not to be petulant and make these demands. I mean, we have that issue to deal with, certainly. But on the other hand, you you want to be sensitive to the child. To some extent, you want to show you love the child by showing some sensitivity to their concerns. So there's a balance there, right? Sort of like my parents used to do when I would threaten to do this. They actually packed a meal for me. Uh, held the door open as I walked out, waved goodbye by the front porch, and I think they had rented my room out before I even hit the curb in that long walk. In the case of God, he knows better. He knows the whole point here is to teach a lesson and do it in a loving way. So look what he does for Elijah. He does what parents do. First, he packs Elijah a lunch. I mean, basically, that's what this is. I know it's easy to read into this and see it from the perspective that look at God supporting Elijah in his fleeing from Ahab. If you read further in this chapter, you'll figure out with me that that's not what's going on right here. This is a bit of mocking. This is a bit of God playing up to Elijah just in the moment to sort of show Elijah later how foolish he's really being. You walked all this distance. You didn't even pack a lunch. Well, here, let me give you something to eat. What does Elijah do? He eats it and he lays back down. He says, oh, well, this is working out pretty good so far. And my favorite line in the chapter, the angel taps him on the shoulder and says, oh, no, 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 no. You need to eat because you've got a long way to go, buddy. You decided you wanted to go. You're going all the way. It's kind of like the parent who walks up to the child who's sitting on the curb waiting for the parent to come out. And instead of saying, oh, honey, come back in the house, the parent says, you know, you better get going. You've got a long way to go. And by the way, here's something to take to eat on the way. That's what God's doing to Elijah here. He's saying, if you want to make a point, I'll help you make that point so that you'll learn the lesson as well. So he says, let's get going. You still have to reach Mount Horeb. Based on what we know so far, based on him being a day's walk outside of Beersheba, he still has 200 miles to walk to reach Mount Horeb from where he is right now. God's not letting him off easy. You want to come to Mount Horeb? Fine. Let's go to Mount Horeb. What does it say that Elijah picked that location? Mount Horeb was the place that the Israelites had long associated with meeting God face to face. That's where Moses did it. That's where they received the law. So if there was a place you wanted to have an audience before God to get your to get off your chest, what was bothering you? This was sort of the archetype place, the quintessential meeting place for God. And so what Elijah has done is set on his heart this need to have a face to face discussion with God about why he's not getting what he expected to get in his ministry. And he's picked Mount Horeb as the place. And God said, if you want to meet me there, let's go. I'll help you start walking. You got 200 miles. I wonder what goes through his head at this point. I wonder if he's regretting deciding to make this his goal. Well, now he knows God's serious. And so supernaturally, that food sustains him, we're told, for 40 days of walking to reach this place that God has appointed for him. You know, Elijah's fallen into a trap here. It's a trap we all have potentially waiting for us. And I don't just mean those in ministry. You know, this is obviously something you can compare to a man or woman who's serving in ministry. 
I don't just mean in a pastor's role. I'm talking about any form of ministry we may take on in the church, any volunteer activity we may choose to sign up for, any opportunity to serve in a missions trip or vacation Bible school or Sunday school. The trap here is pride. The trap is to start thinking that the work we're doing in these opportunities God may give us is all about us. It's all about what we bring. It's all about what we do. It's all about how smart we are, how good we are. And if we're that good and smart and capable, and here we are putting all our time and effort into these ministries, well, we certainly expect to get some kind of return for that, don't we? God needs to honor that. Well, God better honor that. Look at all that I'm doing for God. What happens when he doesn't honor it the way you assumed it was going to be honored? What if, like Elijah, the big fire comes down from heaven and now you're thinking, that kind of takes care of that, and a week later everybody's right back to where they were before? How do you deal with that? What does that say about God's purposes in our ministry? And who do you put the blame on, or do you blame anybody? Elijah had begun to blame not only himself, but truly he's blaming God. He's disappointed that God's not brought him the fruit of a ministry that he assumed was always to be. Otherwise, why call me, right? And then he goes, I think, a one step further when he says, even my fathers before me had the same problem. Those men, likewise, were somehow insufficient to the work God had given them. Otherwise, what would explain why the nation of Israel had been so disobedient for so long? Let me tell you, folks, that's pride. That is the pride of the human heart viewing our participation in God's work as a necessity for God rather than a blessing for us. Look at what Elijah does when he reaches Mount Horeb. And I want you to pay particular attention to what God does to him. Verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rendering the mountains and breaking it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's hiding in this cave on Mount Horeb, the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And in a moment of self-pity, he whines. None of us have ever done this, I realize, so it's, you have to study this to really understand how this works. But in this moment of self-pity, he whines to God. Look at the phrases he uses. I want you to just think in your mind how often he talks about me and my and I and everything about me, God, and it's not working out the way I want, and now they just want to kill me. Pity party. That's what we're seeing here. Then God asks this great question. What are you doing here? He asked that question more than once, you notice. 
What are you doing here? This isn't because God doesn't know why he's there. It's not like this is a mystery to God. His point in asking the question is so that Elijah might answer that question and understand the message. Now, at first, Elijah doesn't get it. He keeps answering in the same way. You saw at the end of the verses I just read, he gives almost identically the same answer again. He says, no one's listening to me. No one is paying any attention to your word. And so then God begins to deal with Elijah now on this mountain in a very interesting way. He tells him, get up and go to the mouth of the cave. Now, what he just told Elijah to do is something Elijah was hoping for. Do you remember the story of Moses? At one point when Moses is on the mountain and getting the the word from God, getting the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, at one point he says, I want to see your glory. I want to see you, God, in the way that a man can. And God, in honoring Moses' faithfulness, says, I'll show you what I can. Stand here in the crevice of this rock where I can just pass in front of you and you'll just get a glimpse of my glory. You can't see my face, for if you did that, you would die, but at least you can sense my glory and get some appreciation as a reward, as a tribute to his faithfulness. That was something that the Israelites had always looked back upon. And what Elijah has done, and if you want an example of pride, just consider what Elijah's done here. Elijah has gone to Mount Horeb demanding the same experience. He's demanding that God would honor him the way God had already honored Moses in the past. And so God says, okay, stand in the mouth of the cave. And now Elijah's saying, finally, we're getting somewhere. Finally, this is what I've been waiting for. Finally, an audience with God. I'll be able to just tell him all that's on my mind. So he stands in the mouth of the cave, waiting for this moment. And as he's standing there, God comes by first in the form of this strong wind. We're talking about a wind here strong enough to break rocks, sort of like you get here. But then we're told God's not in the wind. Oh, it's a wind, all right. God created it, but it's not God himself. Then we hear after that an earthquake, and then after that a fire. Big supernatural displays with lots of power, but yet God's not in them. And then we're told a breeze. We're talking about something very slight. We're talking about the kind of everyday experience you and I have every time we walk outside. Just the slightest little wind. But Elijah recognizes that God was actually going to be present in that wind. So he covers himself. The mantle here, think of it like a a part of his cloak. He covers his face because he recognizes he can't look upon the face of God. And in that moment, that little breeze, God passes by. When God finally passes by Elijah in this way, he doesn't come in a powerful, manifold way, like an earthquake, like fire, like at the point on Mount Carmel when all the fire came down and destroyed the priest's sacrifice. No, no, he comes in a way that, you know what, if you weren't looking for him, you might miss him. He comes in a form that if Elijah hadn't known better, he never would have realized God was coming. We're talking about subtlety here. We're talking about something very, very simple. If God can come to Elijah in this way on the top of the mountain, what Elijah just realized is he can come anytime, anyway, anywhere. And you might miss him. And you will miss him if you're too busy looking for the earthquake. You will miss him if you've set your heart on something manifold, something magnificent, something big and amazing. And in our own walk today, we're talking about, I want the 10,000 person church, not the 100 person church. I want to reach the entire world, not my neighborhood. I want to save every child in the VBS. Maybe not, maybe just one. But whatever it is, I want it to be God's will and not my own. For although we would love to see these big things happen, and certainly that's a heart we all want to hold on to, you can't make that your goal unless it's also God's goal. 
What Elijah had done as he stands at the face of this cave is recognize, we pray, that what God was showing him was that, you know what, Elijah, I don't need your plan, you need mine. And sometimes my plan will not be to be magnificent and huge in my purposes. Sometimes it will be quiet and simple. And yet, when that quiet and simple purpose is met, the good that I have to do has been done. And you've been faithful to help me do it. But Elijah had missed that purpose. He had not been working in the hearts of a majority in that city, in Samaria, nor in the nation of Israel overall. In the ministry God had given him for those eight years, Elijah worked in the hearts of a minority. There was a small remnant in the nation of Israel that heard what he said and followed God, and the rest didn't. And that was to God's purposes. Look what he says in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go return to the way, on your way, to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nishi, you shall appoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You have to understand what God's just given to Elijah. In verse 18, God tells Elijah, I've got men who are listening to your message. I've got 7,000 of them. Do you notice that number? It's not 6,999. It's not 7,001. It's literally 7,000 only. Now, let me ask you, what are the odds that as you preach a message, only and exactly 7,000 believe it? Who do you give credit to when you notice that the number is perfectly 7,000? Do you think, well, shoot, I was shooting for eight, but I got seven. That's good. Or do you say to yourself, what a miracle. Clearly, God saved who he wanted to save and gets all the glory for it, which is how it's supposed to work. And as a result... In Elijah's day, God said, I'm not saving the whole nation. They're apostate, but I've kept those I will keep. I've kept the remnant. I've kept 7,000. That's the whisper. That's the breeze. That's the small movement of God in their day. Not the big imagined earthquake of movement that Elijah was depending on that had left him disappointed. What Elijah had forgotten was that roughly 55 years earlier than this day, God had spoken to the very first king of the nation of Israel, a man named Jeroboam, who had followed Solomon and taken those ten tribes and gone off and been their first king. That man was an evil man. And God made a promise to him. He said, if you follow me wholly and with your heart, I will bless this nation. But if you don't, there's going to be literally hell to pay. And Jeroboam did not follow God. He was an apostate king, one in a long line of apostate kings. But listen to this. If you go back with me, you can follow or you can just listen from your seat. In 1 Kings 14, look what God says to Jeroboam after Jeroboam disobeyed. He says this to a prophet. He said, deliver this message to Jeroboam. Verse 7, go say to Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. And you have also done more evil than all who were before you. And have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. 
Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. And then listen to what he says. Verse 14. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, and he will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their Asherim and provoked the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam. Do you hear what God just said? This is 55 years before Elijah even came along. And God has already said, because of what Jeroboam did, the nation of Israel was going to be scattered. We're talking here about how the Assyrians come in and eventually conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, take all of the nation of Israel captive, and lead them out into the nations we don't even know where they are to this day. They've been lost since the time of Assyria. Do you realize that what Elijah was expecting to happen could not happen? Because 55 years earlier, God's word had already said, I'm going to scatter this nation. What Elijah was asking for was the wrong goal. He was disappointed that his ministry didn't result in a nationwide revival when if he had just understood God's word, he would have known that revival was never going to happen. It wasn't possible because God had proclaimed that it would not happen in punishment for Jeroboam's sin and for the nation of Israel following after that sin. So had Elijah set his mind on the conversion of Israel in doing that, did he have his mind on the right goal? No. So ironically, when he saw his efforts as failure, had his pity party, and wanted to have it out with God because God didn't bless him with the results he expected, what he was actually doing was fulfilling the prophecy God had given earlier. His failure was a fulfillment of prophecy. Not a mistake. So should he have run and hidden? No. And that's why God keeps asking him, why are you here? Why are you here, Elijah? Why aren't you back in Damascus serving me like you said you were going to, like I told you to? Do you realize Damascus is now 400 miles away? And the word that God just spoke to him here in the desert is, I need you to go to Damascus and anoint King Heziel, king of Aram. This man is eventually going to be one of the men that God uses to come down and judge the nation of Israel for their sin. So I need him in power. I need you to anoint him into that role. Secondly, he says, I need you to anoint Jehu, the new king of Israel. What Jehu does, by the way, is he removes all Baal worship from the nation of Israel. So he says, you're worried about Baal worship? I've already got a plan for that. Get back to home. We'll take care of it. Anoint Jehu. And then finally, he says, do you realize you're not the last prophet? Do you realize this isn't all about you, Elijah? Do you realize that I have a plan that goes long past your days? In fact... I'm getting ready to anoint your successor, a man named Elisha, and I need you to go back and find him too. Can you imagine what must have been running through Elijah's mind? He's sitting on this mountain expecting to have told off God on all the reasons why God hasn't done what he's supposed to do, and all God does is remind him of all the things he's not doing that God needs done. And hopefully at some point Elijah recognized that God's plan always included the results that he was now getting in his ministry. I think from time to time we're all going to make the same mistake. And, of course, if you're in full-time ministry, if you were a pastor or if you were a worship leader, well, clearly this kind of a message is something you need to dwell on every day in your ministry. Because it's so easy, folks, to stand up here 
and to see a crowd and to have that crowd appreciate your ministry and to tell you nice things, as I'm sure you would do for men like Brian or others, and to encourage them along in that service and to tell them of all the good things that God is doing in your life because of the ministry that's going on here. And you should do those things. Just recognize, though, that the battle that the pastor or that the worship leader or that anyone has in being in those positions is to never think it's about them. And to never count the success as their success or the failure as their failure. Because that's what Elijah would have done. Would you agree? If he had seen a worldwide or a nationwide revival in his day, who do you think he would have taken? Where do you think the credit would have gone? If he's willing to walk 400 miles to blame God for not having success, don't you think he would have stayed at home and taken the success and made it his own? See, that's the mistake of pride. We take God's glory from him. And it matters not whether we succeed or fail. It only matters whether we were obedient. And we'll leave the results to God. But you know, if you're not in full-time ministry, don't think you're off the hook. Because ministry is not about a paid career position. Unfortunately, we've made it that in many places. That's not the biblical view of ministry. Every single Christian, once saved, is now set on a road of ministry. In your family, in your friendships, in your workplace, wherever God places you. And you're going to find yourself, much like Elijah at times, seeing the effort you put in not give the results you expected to get. And now in some cases that's a disobedience issue. In some cases we make mistakes and we need to learn from those mistakes. But let me tell you folks, God is not dependent on us. Do you realize that your mistakes don't thwart his plan any more than your successes guarantee it? His plan is his plan and he works it with with us or without us. The blessing is to be a part of it. So when we find ourselves frustrated because that neighbor we've been preaching the gospel to for years never seems to come around to believe it, or the family member, for that matter, who's never really understood what we've been trying to tell them. Before you shake your fist at God, just make sure that you understand his plan. Maybe his plan is you'll spend another 20 years before he'll bring that person to faith. And what he's looking for is faithful obedience on your part. And whether it's a church of this size or a church ten times this size, the same practical truth exists for all of us. Before we start making this about us and not about God, we need to make sure that we've checked in and understand his plan. Don't blame yourself if it fails. Don't blame God if it fails. Don't give yourself credit when it succeeds. Ask only, why are you here? Are you at the right place? Have you gone to where God has directed you? Are you doing the things God has asked you to do? If you are, be content in that. Let God work out the details. But you know, if you can't answer those questions, if you're not sure you're in the right place, if you're not sure you're doing the right things with your time or your money, then what are you worried about God and his results for? Take care of what you can take care of in your own walk. Deal with those issues first. There's a city outside these walls that by and large doesn't know the Lord. And they're suffering under the sin that comes from a life of disobedience to the gospel. And for reasons we may not altogether understand, God has raised up a small fellowship in this corner of the city. And he's called a number of you, and all of you, I hope, into this room because he's intending to use you in that ministry. There's not many of you. There's probably not a lot of financial resources. There's probably not a lot of time and, of, and, and skills. There's only what we have in this room. But it doesn't matter because God's in this room. And what God may be purposing to do through this small fellowship Maybe earthquakes and fire, but it may be a breeze. But whatever it is, what we don't want to have happen is stand before our Lord on the day of our death and then be called to account for what we did with what he gave us. And maybe stand in that moment saying, well, you know, I really was expecting you to do so much more. And have him turn and say, 
what did you do with what I gave you? That's the test. I have hope for so many good things in this fellowship because I've seen so much so far. God seems to be doing an amazing work in this small group of people in just 18 months. What will he do in five years? What will he do in ten years? We don't know. Maybe the real question is, what are you doing here today? Because that's the question he's asking every time you open his word. What are you doing today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we may not know all the reasons why we're here. For, them, for that matter, Father, many of us may have been here simply because on Sunday mornings we're supposed to be in church. And that's not a bad reason. There's plenty of other reasons why people don't come. So, Father, we praise you that you did bring us here this morning. But we also know, Father, that it is merely the means to an end. It is a means of worship. It is a means of study and learning and of preparation, Father, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. But in the end, Father, it is about being prepared to go out and do work on behalf of the gospel and in your name, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, wherever you send us. So, Father, we pray today that as we've studied Elijah and learned a little about his life and about the things that may have motivated him and the mistakes he may have made along the way, I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit in our hearts would show us where we may be making perhaps the same mistakes, perhaps letting pride interfere with our willingness to serve and be obedient. But, Father, also we pray that it would spur us to make that effort as he did when he left Mount Horeb and walk back to Damascus, so to speak, to, to go where you would send us, to make whatever efforts required to be of use to you. And to look for you in the breeze, Father, to look for you in the simple things of life as you've chosen to work and not expect something magnificent simply because we are part of that work. That our humility, Father, would let us recognize that you work through us because you love us, because you desire to include us, not because you need us. So, Father, never let our pride be an obstacle. We pray that we would always be ready to serve you and putting you first for all the glory is yours. And we praise this and say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.